Ben, what do you think about The Matrix? I love it here. I love that I'm the main character. I love the inputs that my senses get. It's great. I love it. Big fan. It's Britney, bitch. And uh, the Iraq everywhere, like, such as. I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Oh, surely. Our next-door neighbors are foreign countries. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive. We dropped uh, an episode yesterday that did big numbers. Oh, yeah. What you drop? Ben had to drag me through the production of this episode, but we did it on the uh, Epic Bacon Reddit guy. And thank God he did. We were kind of the first people to do something like this. There's not really a lot of research available out there. Man, did you guys talk about Elon? Yes, yes. How did you guess? Because he's the air example. Who else would you, could you possibly refer to that everybody could instantly understand how much of a loser he is? <laughs> it just came up organically during the discussion, and we ended up doing 10 minutes on him. I was just thinking about Cypher sitting there cutting into one of those big fucking bacon rat monstrosities (laughs) i want to be epic (laughs) i want to be someone important like uh the richest man in the world but i uh own a car company or uh cypher comes back as elon musk (laughs) cypher is elon musk we are in the simulation right that's why elon musk thinks that he's living in the simulation it's a residual knowledge of the deal that he made i want to be rich i want to be somebody important you never asked to be funny (laughs) (laughs) and i want my post to go right to the top (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) let's go all right i'm in (laughs) honestly that's how i felt cooking up the pod track i really felt like i was sending us all into the matrix getting all the wires and connections and input output right now tanks now Hey, everybody. Welcome to Remember Shuffle. My name is Ben. With me, as always, is my co-host, Jornano. Hello. <laughs> and today we are talking about a trilogy that is near and dear to all what of our What is hearts. a podcast? <laughs> I'm, not supposed to make, I'm not supposed to make Ben laugh this week. Yeah, I got a nagging cold, so I'm coughing. We're going to try and edit out as much as possible, but anytime <laughs> I laugh, which... <laughs> Happens with some regularity on the pod. I'm kind of the staccato stav laugh of yeah. the pod. I end up in a coughing fit. So <laughs> whatever the opposite of ASMR is, that's what this <laughs> podcast is going to be. You know, fucking do you have some crunchy snacks I could eat while we're at it, Jordana? <laughs> yes, we are talking about a trilogy near and dear to our hearts. We are talking about the Matrix. And I hear you. I hear you in my head right now. Wait a minute, Ben. Didn't The Matrix come out in 1999? Isn't this a 90s movie? I mean, it's about hackers. Everyone dresses in stupid 90s edgelord mass shooter outfits. (laughs) Isn't your whole thing about the 2000s? Well, most of The Matrix franchise came out in 2003, in which we had both the second and third movies. We had the Animatrix, the spinoff film. And we even had some tie-in video game products like Enter the Matrix, which came 
came out. So this is a multimedia franchise five years before the first MCU film that came out in 2003. So the average center of gravity for The Matrix is the 2000s decade. And the general thesis for the episode that we're going to have here is that this is a franchise that was ruined by the trends and forces of 2000s filmmaking, including too much CGI, the need for the franchise, the extended universe, the tie-in products, the Easter eggs. Just a way too epic scale of power inflation, you know, bigger, bigger, bigger. These are some of the trends and forces that we see that we've talked about that we complained about on our Batman episode where I compared the MCU to a baby mobile with lights and sounds <laughs> and pew, pew, pew that ruined what was an amazing, perfect film that came out in 1999. And to discuss this work, we are joined by Speak of the Devil from our Batman episode. One of our favorite guests to have, none other than John. Say hi. Hi, guys. How you doing? Doing great, man. Talking about The Matrix. Very excited. We are talking about IMDb's second highest rated sci-fi movie of all time a movie that joss whedon has said is his number one movie of all time and a movie that quentin tarantino once ranked as his favorite film of all time until the second and third movies came out and ruined the mythology for him as it did for many of us so today we'll get into why the matrix is a perfect movie and why the 2000s ruined the original matrix in some ways yeah do you know how bad a piece of art you need to be to retroactively ruin good art imagine if van gogh did a painting so bad people hated starry night after the fact The Romeo and Juliet extended universe really (laughs) fucked with some of the stuff that I originally thought about the Capulets and the Romulans. (laughs) Actually, it's funny you mentioned that, Giordano. Shakespeare literally did that. Really? Shakespeare had a character named Sir John Falstaff, who was this fat, corpulent knight who just ate all the time and drank and crushed pussy. But he was also melancholic and he had these observations about life. He was a fat, horny Socrates and people ate this shit up. But Shakespeare was forced to write another Falstaff play called The Merry Wives of Windsor. He was compelled Mm. by the fucking queen, I think. And he brings the Falstaff character back. Ruined it. Ruined (laughs) Falstaff. Don't people like The Merry Wives of Windsor? It sucks, man. Oh, yeah. It stinks. (laughs) (laughs) It did not do numbers. John, what are some of your general thoughts about The Matrix and its sequels? Well, The Matrix 1999. Cool as shit. Mm -hmm. The other two, you know, they've got some really nice scenes. Yeah. Yeah, good scenes, not a great movie. And I don't even know if the third one has great scenes. I I don't know if it has great scenes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, John, you were worried that your opinions from when you were a child might not hold up. I was kind of hoping some of it would change. My opinions about the second and third, I was really hopeful that I would like them more. Yeah, but, I, I was also like, maybe I was just stupid. Maybe I was 13 years old and maybe this movie is good, but I got confused by the architect's SAT words like concordantly. But no, it, it is not good. The second yeah, is bad. The third is exa- worse. Exact same experience. This I, just, I disagree kind of a, so much. Well, we'll get to it shit on your opinion you're you're picking the best part of the movie to shit on there's plenty to shit on with matrix reloaded but the architect scene is not one of them it's good actually it's okay i mean everyone in matrix reloaded talks too fast because they tried to cram too much into this bloated movie if you listen to the way that morpheus delivers lines in his speech before the rave orgy in zion it's like he's pressed for time and he's trying to get through it whereas og 
Matrix Morpheus, those words drip out of him like molasses. <laughs> yeah. Morpheus doesn't really have a lot to do in the two sequels. He's the zealot. He believes. In the third one, <laughs> he spends the entire movie in a chair. <laughs> <laughs> the nomenclature we should use, we can talk about the Matrix, the film, and then for the bad ones, we can call them the matrices, which is the correct plural of Matrix. <laughs> okay, so let's start out with a plot summary of Matrix 1 and what makes it awesome. Because this is a great barometer for whether or not you are a millennial or whether or not you're a Zoomer. Because 100% of the millennial dudes have seen this. Less so millennial 100%. women. And even less so the Zoomers. Yeah, I've spoken to a few Zoomers about The Matrix recently. And they all are interested in seeing it, but none of them have. It was uh, shocking to me because this is such a cultural touchstone. It's not totally shocking to me because you already mentioned the retroactive effect of the second and third movies really put a damper, I think, on the cultural impact because at that point, much of the style or other movie-making trends, as we get further away and iterate away from that, there's not a lot of the same cultural impact because it's been so like, well, those second and third ones, yeah. Right, yeah, like, you're, you're right. There. If you were alive from 1999 to 2002 and watching movies then you would be way more likely to get into the matrix but if you're coming of age in 2005 or 8 or 10 or something and you're like oh I, I might watch this matrix but i've heard that there's a dark shadow on this whole series now and it's not as enjoyable right who's rushing out to watch game of thrones for the first time exactly Ooh, yeah, yes great yeah. point yeah if you do not stick the dismount or like, how much more likely are you to watch lost from 2001 through 8 compared to afterwards where you know that you're already headed for disappointment so matrix one Imagine, it's 1999. This is not an established IP. You don't know what you're getting into. You don't know what the fuck a Matrix is. It's something to do with Excel, a brand new program. <laughs> we open with a conversation between a woman, Trinity, and a man, Joey Pantaleone, a.k.a. Cypher, talking about wiretapping. We have law enforcement come up, and there's a little conversation where a man in a suit, an agent, says, your men are already dead. Think about how discombobulated you are, because Trinity is dressed in a head-to-toe fucking leather bodysuit. Uh, if anything, you might assume she's the bad guy, if you don't know. And we immediately have a dope-ass action scene where this woman beats the shit out of four cops. She's running. She's leaping over rooftops. She does this sick thing where she jumps in midair. It slows down to show how quickly she's moving, and the camera circles around her. And she, yeah, beats the shit out of these cops. It looks dope as shit. She eventually runs to a payphone, disappears, truck comes into it. You don't know what's happening, but you know that it looks awesome. Yeah, absolutely. The action is incredible. The way that they've slowed down time, they're doing kung fu in a way that you're not familiar with as an American audience. And in the next scene, a man named Neo wakes up. He's being contacted on like a very cool looking computer UI and he sells some illegal software mm -hmm. to some cyberpunks who come over. That was one of my questions I wrote down. <laughs> I was like, what are they buying? You remember the war on illegal programs that the state did? <laughs> my dad actually did used to have the satellite card unscrambler and people would come over to unscramble it. So he, he was a bit like Neo, I suppose. If Neo was oh also God. Ned Flanders, that's my dad. <laughs> you live two lives. I know Kung Fu diddly do. Kung Fu diddly do. <laughs> Just imagining the dramatic scene when Agent Smith fires a t-shirt cannon and kills Trinity. <laughs> and cyberpunks come over. He follows them to the, the club and he walks into this very cool 90s style cyberpunk rave and he he meets up with Trinity, who is like a hacker that he's been speaking to online. Next thing you know, 
Neo has woken up and he's ready to go to work. But I want to pause here and talk a little bit about the aesthetics of the film because it's such a consistent thing throughout the movie and it's introduced and looks great from the very beginning. Everything is green and black and I love anything with a very consistent aesthetic that looks great together. I think it's the reason why people like Wes Anderson movies is just because of his aesthetic, right? Because everything looks so perfect together and none of those fucking movies have a coherent storyline, the Wes Anderson movies, and people still love them. That's bullshit. (laughs) If he were born in a different time, he would have been the best artisanal diorama maker or dollhouse maker. That was his calling. Not telling stories, not telling (laughs) compelling, interesting stories with rich and nuanced characters. That's not really his strength. And so if you can give a movie like The Royal Tenenbaums five stars, then you can also give The Matrix five stars just on aesthetics alone. Just getting back to the aesthetics a little bit. Like you said, John, from that first scene, we're in these like really broken down buildings. It's got that 90s aesthetic of the inner city when everything is weathered, sort of like the buildings in Fight Club or in the Boondock Saints. And when these cyberpunks show up to Neo's door, I remember seeing this as a kid and even now and thinking this type of guy, I feel like you never get to see in a movie. Someone who's nerdy, but also a punk. The redheaded guy who shows up at Neo's house looks like such a fucking dweeb, but he's also (laughs) a punk and he's hanging out with this colorful cast of friends. A cyberpunk, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got the Siegfried and Roy guys behind him and the hot girl with the neck rings. And he's just wearing a leather jacket with no shirt underneath. It's awesome. I love the way everybody looks and dresses in this movie, as well as the color swatch that the film runs with. We love a consistent aesthetic look in a movie. Yeah, even with the color hues, like Jordano mentioned, everything in the Matrix is color-hued green, which recalls the green font of the Matrix code or the zeros and ones. But when you get into the quote-unquote real world, the human world, everything is hued blue, and it's just consistent. It's such a nice touch. And when you go to the club with the cyberpunks, they're playing Rob Zombie. It feels very inspired by a gay German club. (laughs) And like a Kit Kat club or something. And I love it. I feel like you don't get to see this in movies very often. And it's really cool to hear. Even if I would never listen to Prodigy or Rammstein outside of this movie, I love to see it in the context of this movie. This was the style at the time, man. Triple X. You got the nightclub scene, like Blade. It's right in the mood. A lot of the music, I feel like it's very emblematic of that electronic music that's a little bit darker tone, repetitive, and like, I don't know how else to tell you that, but... Yeah, it's like a weird mix of electronica and metal. It is darker. I think Prodigy is a good example of that type of music. Yeah, the Prodigy, Jordano. Yeah, I mean, the Wachowskis found a way to put a rave in all three of these movies. They clearly (laughs) enjoyed the club. I think the opening is wildly good. It establishes so much of what we do think of as iconic from the Matrix immediately. Like you said, her coming up in that crouching kick to the face pose hovering midair is right up there with bullet time backwards dodge for most sort of spoofed or imitated. I like the fact that they bring in Hugo Weaving right away. He really helps set a great tone as a villain. I think he's, I love him. He's the best. His performance is perfect because he's, yeah, this besuited agent, but he has this bizarre cadence in how he speaks because he's a computer program. He sounds robotic. The pacing is strange and just a little disorienting. It's so good. He's by far the best actor in the trilogy, Hugo Weaving. 
one thing that I really love, like these two opening scenes, the Trinity escape from the police in the Matrix and then immediately Neo getting to the club and meeting her, is that this movie's pacing is a fucking arrow. Just beeline. It is linear. It is straight. It crams so much in its two and a half hour runtime, but it doesn't feel long because the pacing is so good. I was shocked to see that this is a two and a half hour movie. It does not feel like it at all. It's not rushed. It's not crammed. It, it's just efficient. I think it's one of the best paced movies ever. So yeah, Trinity tells Neo that she has the answer to his question. What is the Matrix? The answer to one of his many, many <laughs> questions. So Neo goes to work. He wakes up the next day after the club and he's late for work because he's been up all night at the club and his boss chews him out for being late and he's watching the window get squeegeed in the background, which I thought was a really great example of the tiny details that this movie bothers to do to make the movie paced better, seem more interesting, feel more lived in. Someone squeegeeing away the water, it doesn't mean anything on a surface level, but it reminds you of some of the Matrix code, watching the water drip down. The idea of something going from being opaque to visible reminds you of what's going on in Neo's head right now with things becoming more clear. And those tiny details that aren't spoon-fed to you... There is no spoon. Mm-hmm. ...are very, very nice as an audience because it makes you stop and think, why would they put that squeegee in there? What's the subtext here? Yeah, falling water is a recurring motif in this movie. Oh, wow. A recurring image in a film that's not explained to you Joss Whedon-y style directly to you. <laughs> what a nice touch. Remember when movies respected their viewers? It's such a good scene, too, because we have the contrast between the decrepit pre-gentrification inner city that we have in these first couple scenes, underground club, tin rooftops that Trinity's running over, to a soulless corporate, could be anywhere in the world, cubicle office. So you have the contrast that they draw, which, you know, this movie loves binaries, the Matrix <laughs> world in the real world, the stingy in the corporate, the red pill or the blue pill. They really get into this. So Neo gets a warning that they're coming for him from Morpheus, and he, he begins to run away from the agents who show up at his office, but he's not able to quite escape them, and he's bugged by the agents. He's put in an interview room where they bug him. He's very combative with them at first. He gives them the middle finger, says he wants to speak to his lawyer, but he's not dealing with regular agents. He's, he assumes that he has his American rights, and they get his mouth to stick together. It is so grotesque. His mouth fleshes over. The agent has a great line like why call your agent when you're not able to speak and all of a sudden this the first okay well second after trinity the second supernaturally thing that we do the second hit that okay this is not the world that we're used to these agents are able to flesh over neo's mouth and when they bug him it's not like putting a wire on him they have a physical analog transponder or whatever that turns into a grotesque insect and buries itself into neo's belly button straight body horror for a young man i was shook by those two things uh -huh. yes. i did not like them one bit i don't like the idea of anything going in my belly button you suffer a trauma as a child when you have that cut off <laughs> i don't like to be reminded of it I was trying to eat while watching this movie this week. It's a very tough movie to eat while watching because there's a lot of grotesque imagery in the movie between this, the belly button stuff, the, the bodies being liquefied and fed back to the drones. The Wachowskis certainly have an, uh, a flair for body horror, I think. Yeah, and it makes sense in the movie. Sometimes a movie, if it has crazy tones in either place, it can undercut the movie. If you have like zany slapstick comedy, 
in a movie that's supposed to be serious. These tonal shifts can undermine a flick, but the Wachowskis nail it. So Neo is bugged and Trinity, Switch, and Apoc pick him up in the pouring rain and debug him. And they go to like a beautiful abandoned Max Payne style hotel. I love the look of all of these buildings they're in. And everybody's got these hacker names. Yeah, everyone's dressed like either a pimp or a sex worker. It's <laughs> awesome. A lot of leather. A pimp or a mass shooter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, these are the human resistance. This is where it is revealed to Neo that the world as he imagines it, as we imagine our world, is not as it seems. This is where we get the famous red pill, blue pill scene. And I just want to circle back when he's in the car getting debugged. There's a great little throwaway line. Switch, one of the human resistance characters, calls Neo a copper top. I was watching it this time around and I was still confused. I was like, he doesn't have red hair. What, what is this all about? And I had to look this up. It's about to be revealed that the human beings who live in the Matrix in the real world are in these pods and they generate power and energy for the machines. He's a copper top because he's still a battery. Yeah. Uh, he has copper on the top, zinc on the bottom. And this is so funny to me because the stupid, stupid alt-right who invented the term red pilling, when you see through the world and see that actually white men are the victims or whatever, they call people who are not red-pilled NPCs like non-player characters in a video game. But there's actually a term from the Matrix universe they could have used called Hopper Tops. <laughs> They're just too bad at watching movies to get it. It was one of the many, many things wrong with the red-pilling movement is that they don't watch movies good enough. <laughs> so Neo's offered the choice, red pill, blue pill. Takes the red pill, see how far the rabbit hole goes. Takes the blue pill, wakes up, and he can imagine it was all a dream. He takes the red pill. He looks into a broken mirror. Movie loves fucking mirrors, right? Are you who you think you are? Are. You can see it even when Morpheus offers the two pills. Neo is reflected in both of the lenses. This is the level of craft that has gone into every fucking shot of this movie. Like Paddington 2, which Giordano tells me is one of the greatest films of all time. It is terrific. <laughs> because every frame looks like a watercolor. I'm not watching that fucking baby movie. The first one's better. <laughs> Most people will tell you the second, but the first is quite delightful. Well, Jordano tells me it's so great because every frame looks like a watercolor. It looks like a storybook picture. Yeah. Every frame of The Matrix is a photorealistic graphic novel, better than any actual comic book movie. Yeah. And when The Matrix was pitched around Hollywood, it was pitched as a 600 frame storyboard, which is longer than a normal movie storyboard would be. They really had an understanding of what every frame should look like before the movie was made. So we have another recurring motif with the reflections. Neo touches the broken mirror and this goo spreads over him, which again is an awesome touch because he is waking up in the real world in his pod and he's feeling the cold of the goo. But in the Matrix simulation, the goo spreads over him and we see another great instance of body horror where he is hairless, shaved head. He's filled with these plugs going into him. He has a tube going into his mouth to fucking feed him intravenously. And then when he wakes up, what do the machines do? They flush him down the tubes and he gets picked up by real world Morpheus in his hovercraft ship, the Nebuchadnezzar. And here is where Neo gets his little lecture. And if you wanted to criticize, this is maybe the laziest and most direct exposition of the whole film where we lay out the entire history of how we got here. So TLDR, the world is a simulation. Humanity invented AI. The AI became sentient. AI, you mean artificial intelligence? <laughs> <laughs> AI. 
I mean artificial intelligence. Yes. I mean, this is 1999. There's a war between the humans and the machines. The humans, like morons, torch the sky. They make it so that the sun no longer penetrates the Earth's atmosphere. So it's just black clouds because the machines ran on solar power. The machines then realize that humans generate bioelectricity. So they subjugate the humans and put them in pods to gather electricity. But how do you keep the humans complacent? You do it through an imaginary world called the Matrix. And Morpheus and his crew on the hovership are the human resistance, the people who have gotten out. And all these humans who have been bred to be batteries, hence the copper top slur, they all have jacks in the back of their head that they can plug into the matrix. And so the human resistance flies around the sewers in their hovercraft. They get up towards the surface. They hack into the matrix and they try and free people who know the truth, who have started to glean that the world is not as they think it is. And this is where we get the other big reveal that Morpheus believes that Neo is the one. He hmm. is the messiah-like figure who will end the war between humans and machines. The figure who will be able to not only bend, but break the rules of the matrix. And now, retroactively, everything that we saw was confusing starts to make sense. Why can Trinity do these superhuman things? Because she can break the rules of the computer simulation. Why were the agents able to flesh over his mouth? Well, it's revealed through a training montage that the agents are quite literally agents of the Matrix. They work for the machines to keep everyone docile. They work to kill the resistance figures. When they are doing the exposition on what the Matrix is, I do love that it's almost in what Mark Zuckerberg's imagines the metaverse could be. It's like an interactive PowerPoint presentation. They're moving from <laughs> setting to setting to the Earth's surface and then to the pods. They're just moving from room to room in a matrix that they've constructed just for the purposes of giving a presentation to someone. <laughs> Yes. I gotta say, though, you mentioned that it is an expo dump, and it's the most expo dump part of the whole movie. Mm -hmm. I actually put in my notes that, one, it's funny they use a literal TV set to help communicate this. But truly, I think it's an iconic sort of exposition scene. And it's not even one specific scene, but the run that are sort of broken up a little bit. The Morpheus explains how everything works, starting with the, the red pill, blue pill scene, and then again, the training montage. And they're broken up with other scenes to help make it not just a gigantic amount. But I think the fact that the movie, the pacing isn't harmed in any way, that it's still so enjoyable is that Lawrence Fishburne is amazing as Morpheus. It's yep. such an iconic character. And the fact that you brought up his delivery in this first one is it's slow, it's measured, it's powerful. And you get the sense it's very easy for a man like Morpheus to come off a little less impressive. And there's so many great things from his delivery, from some of the design choices. The glasses with no legs were always such a like, whoa, moment in 99 yeah. or in the early 2000s when we actually watched it. I just think that Morpheus, we complain that he doesn't really have as much to do in the later movies. And it's a shame because he's so damn compelling in this one. And I just wanted to shout out the fact that he saved what could have been the worst part of the movie. Not that it needed saving, but he definitely makes it an, an enjoyable part of the movie. Actually look forward to going back when re on the rewatch. Yeah, he's the second best actor in the film. If Hugo Weaving is number mm -hmm. one as Agent Smith, Morpheus is number two. Keanu's three, right? No, no, Carrie Ann right? Moss is three. But, 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 <laughs> and, but I guess Joe, I would actually maybe put Joey P up. Yeah, Joey, Joey, Joey P is three, Carrie Ann Moss four. Keanu's probably the 80th best actor <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> I will defend Keanu. I don't care. I think he's a fine actor. I think he's quite a good actor. Yeah, fine is fine is a good adjective. I mean him as a, like a fine young man. He's a he's 
He's a good actor. He's certainly stand this one of the best physical actors in the world. I don't know that he's one of the best verbal actors <laughs> of all time. Point Blake, you know he's a cop undercover, and he's so good at playing the surfer, you can forget. It's amazing. <laughs> best actor of all time. Did remember hearing a story that he did do some classes, and apparently okay. one of the professors... Professor who always gave a ton of pretty in-depth notes after a performance, and Keanu's was no notes. It was flawless. That's what Keanu says because he can't read. <laughs> <laughs> the professor was probably just taken in by his androgynous charisma. Oh, yeah, his felt beauty. He's a movie star. What can you say? Right. What else do you need? <laughs> those eyes, man, those brown eyes. His sad eyes are the equivalent of Julia Roberts' smile. <laughs> So all of this is thrust upon Neo and the viewer. We learn about agents. We learn about the resistance. We learn about the one. And there's clearly some tension on the ship. We have Joey Pantaleone's character, Cypher, who is the total skeptic. He doesn't think Neo's the one. We have Morpheus, who's the true believer, the zealot. And then we have Trinity, who's kind of agnostic. She's not sure yet. You have every possible poll. The operator, the guy who handles the computer as they hack in, guy named Tank. Tank is very excited about Neo. And they're all pretty excited because he does take to the Matrix pretty quickly. We have an amazing kung fu action scene in a fucking dojo. If you want to talk about all the genres that worked into this, it's a 90s hacker thriller. It's a sci-fi action movie and it's a goddamn kung fu movie and there's some body horror elements to it it's got something for everyone mm -hmm. i was joking that you could have pitched this the way steve jobs pitched the iphone it's not three movies it's one movie <laughs> yeah what if i told you we had three movies for you a kung fu movie a cyber hacker movie and a sci-fi action movie and it's like would you be interested in those three movies well it's actually one movie i'm talking about one movie everyone and yeah we have essentially two more missions into the matrix the first mission this is where it's kind of video gamey is to take neo to go see the oracle because she's going to tell him if he's the one or not again if you wanted to be kind of critical of this movie one might object that the oracle is a little bit of a magic negro character She's a nice old black lady who bakes cookies. But this mission goes totally tits up because Cypher betrays them. Cypher wishes he was never taken out of the Matrix because the real world fucking sucks. Turns out you can't grow real food when you've torched the sky. So all they eat is this slop made of like amino acids. They live on this cramped ship. There's no sign to the end of the war. So Cypher wants to hand the crew back over to the agents so that they can get the codes to Zion, which is the last human city I forgot to mention that god damn there's so much in this movie so the machines can beat the humans and he's going to betray the whole gang in order that he can be put back in the matrix forget everything about the real world because as he says ignorance is bliss if neo is the messiah figure then cypher is the judas character of our story yeah and the machines are the roman empire <laughs> <laughs> so this mission goes totally tits up morpheus is captured and everyone except for trinity and neo dies because this movie has fucking stakes yes i love this quality of the matrix one is that it kills off most of the characters that we are introduced to and come to like i was actually shocked at and a lot of this is the product of watching it as a child probably but i remember really having stronger opinions about a lot of that supporting cast mm. being like oh yeah mouse was cool mouse was a fun character and and switch and apoc were real badass and it's like they are but there's not a lot there and i think they get a lot out of what they do show of the cast that's still a fun group and it matters when we lose them and i mean not like this is 
Oh, yeah. You want to talk about a lasting echo of the of the movie? Yeah, they're like three notches above a pure red shirt, I would say. But <laughs> you do have scenes where they're all having dinner together, and they bit and they bant with one another. So you get to know them a little bit. Yeah, and because if you die in the Matrix, you die in real life. And Cipher, all he does to kill these people, he gets out of the Matrix first, and he just unplugs them. He incapacitates the operator on the ship, and he just essentially hard restarts these people. And again, if you want to talk the kind of tension horror element of it they're at their most vulnerable in the chairs and they know that they're gonna die in the matrix and he just unplugs them and they collapse it's it's some brutal stuff but it turns out the guy that he incapacitated wasn't fully incapacitated he fires his dope ass looking lightning gun and kills cypher tank the operator that is and trinity and neo are able to get out of the matrix now the final climactic mission into the matrix of this film is a rescue mission to rescue morpheus morpheus yeah morpheus has sacrificed himself (sighs) to save neo because he believes neo is the one which as an audience member stings a little bit because we've just seen the oracle tell neo that he is not the one and we're watching morpheus the zealot throw away his life to save neos Mm -hmm. and yeah neo and trinity engineer a rescue mission for morpheus in what is the most iconic scene of the entire trilogy i believe this is the scene where i i remember as an 11 year old ben came to school and was telling me during recess it was a, a friday he's like dude i watched a movie last night it was called the matrix and he was trying to describe to me the lobby scene and the overall plot of the matrix and as an 11 year old i was like i have no idea what you're talking about and Ben, <laughs> I remember you told me, okay, sleep over my house tonight. We will watch <laughs> The Matrix. Yes. And that's exactly what we did. And I, I just immediately became one of my favorite movies. It's so good. This is where we get so many iconic lines and scenes. This is where we get guns, lots of guns uh, for the <laughs> mission. This is where we get the lobby fight scene, which probably inspired some actual mass shooters. <laughs> this scene, this scene does hit different after 20 something years of active shooters. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. This is where we get the bullet time backwards dodge, which rocks. And then we get, I mean, less iconic, but Trinity and Neo end up commandeering an attack helicopter. And again, if you want to talk about how every frame of this movie is like a comic book thing, we have the shot from underneath of all the shells coming out of the helicopter. So good. We Mm -hmm. have, they trigger the sprinklers to confuse the agents. You had the inverse of the fucking imagery of the water indicating confusion. When it was being squeegeed away, Neo was understanding more. Now he uses falling water to disorient and confuse the agents in the room. And as he shoots at the agents, you see the fucking bullets make the water splash. It is so good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the shells fall like the like the rain or the uh, Matrix code. And they use squibs in this movie, which we love to see squibs. That's one of my favorite parts about the lobby scene is seeing the like walls explode Mm -hmm. from the bullets in the background. Every shot in that lobby features the tiles on the walls exploding into dust as they run around and flip upside down. Yeah, John, any any thoughts about the best action sequence of all time? It's wildly entertaining, even at times when I think some of the action isn't from a pure action filmmaking standpoint, isn't jaw-dropping. They are so good at presenting the action in a way that is exciting. At the time, it was super new. The Matrix is 
It's a movie I keep going back to these small details that have stood out over time that I always loved. The mechanical scream as the mirror goes down as we go down the throat. Mm -hmm. Oddly, one of the things that stood out to me was always some of Keanu's actual is physical acting during this action scene. The part where it's near probably the back half of it where he whips out one of the little a little Uzi or something and he starts doing almost like a not it's not as exaggerated as I make it out, but like a, almost like a crab walk up as he's shooting with the one and the left and the right. <laughs> and it it stood out. These are people who understood that the movies are, you know, despite this is a very in some ways it can be a very like thinky movie. Movies are a visual medium and mm-hmm. they wanted to give you something to enjoy almost every single frame. And I like that they always gave Trinity fun shit to run off of and kick people in the head. The little fun moves with the kicking the shotgun over the shoulder. It's like a fun little visual trick that the payoff of it is so satisfying. It's almost like slapstick in violence. (laughs) I I just think that it always just really drove me nuts that they fired a minigun into the room where there's the person they're trying to save. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's definitely one of the biggest suspension of disbelief moments. But But I'll allow it because that was cool as shit. And you want to talk once again about I want to talk about Lawrence Fishburne again. He is tied up to a chair snarling and barely doing much for this entire sequence and holy shit is he compelling yeah him literally breaking the chains and running out it's an exhilarating what is it 10 minute sequence oh at least yeah because it moves around we're in the lobby and then we fire up the elevator shaft to the roof we do the backwards dodge against the agent we commandeer the helicopter we fly down to rescue morpheus from the top of the military grade skyscraper i guess and then we're not done folks there's more to come this movie is so dynamic in its movements so because then we're in a subway station because there's a payphone again something the movie doesn't lay out for you just lets the viewer infer to hack into this universe you need something analog you can't go through a cell phone it needs to be something wired up landlines baby yeah <laughs> they never explain that to you no one fucking spoons feeds you you just see it and the movie respects you enough as viewer <laughs> to infer it and they get morpheus out they get trinity out neo doesn't get out and we have a fucking duel we have a duel between him and agent smith who keeps dead naming him calling him mr anderson because he doesn't want neo to become who he is get a big ass fight scene that is just perfect it's probably my favorite scene in the movie is the fight scene in the subway station where neo beats him a first time but the agents are able to regenerate so he just comes back and then he runs so then in the last bit of the movie neo sort of fully actualizes as the one and defeats agent smith by like completely going outside of the parameters of the matrix and jumping inside him to destroy him meanwhile by the way the, the ship is under attack the Nebuchadnezzar this whole time is is under fire from sentinels they're robot squids folks you glazed over the fact that he was resurrected by the power of love right right okay yeah true i forgot about the detail because maybe i don't particularly like it he becomes it. the one after dying and being resurrected by love yeah right. through a sleeping beauty kiss neo nearly makes it to the ringing phone and then agent smith shoots him he dies trinity whispers that the oracle told her that the person she falls in love with was going to be the one even though the oracle told neo he was not the one because the oracle just tells you what you need to hear it turns out so she kisses dead neo in the real world and he comes back to life and now he's the one and he vanquishes agent smith and he gets out of the matrix just in time for them to blow up the emp and beat the robot squids and the final scene of the movie is neo talking to the agents on the on a phone telling him he's gonna show i'm gonna show the people a world without you or whatever the fuck (laughs) he's doing joe biden (laughs) (laughs) listen jack i'm gonna show you people a world without a machine (laughs) 
We like gruel where I'm from. <laughs> we used to have gruel back in Scranton. <laughs> no, 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 no offense to the Greeks. But my aunt made some of the best gruel there was. <laughs> yeah, underrated Joe Biden line. No offense to the Greeks, but my aunt made some of the best rice pudding there is. Awesome. Yeah. So good. Jesus. But one more detail about the climax of this film is I love the dual layers of tension. I love when a movie can do this. First, we got the tension from our characters versus the agents. And then in the last five minutes, we ramp that up by doing our character versus the agents, but also in the real world, the Sentinels versus the real world characters. And so now you get to double the tension. This is always a very effective way of heightening the stakes. And the movie is already established. It is willing to kill off characters. What do you guys think about the Sentinel stuff in general? Because I, even when I was young, this time around too, like I have to say some of the CGI, it's not phenomenal, but it's totally functional. I don't think it's detracting at all. I think it's just a dated piece of technology. But I've always found the scenes showing like the Nebuchadnezzar navigating. I It was always the part that took me most out of the story. It was always the part that I thought was definitely the least compelling. And like, that's the idea of, the, of a Matrix lore wasn't really there for me because I didn't actually like a lot of the stuff in the real world in the sense that it wasn't super interesting. So I didn't, I wasn't dying to know more. A thousand percent. Yeah, that's something that we're going to get into when we compare and contrast. The best scenes of the Matrix take place in the fucking Matrix. The one that kind of resembles our world, but with cool powers. The most boring shit is the stuff in the quote-unquote real world. Anything related to the Matrix is the diamond plot device that we love so much. And when you exit that, it just becomes like a mid-sci-fi movie. Because we've seen universes that feel similar enough, and it just doesn't seem like as enlightened as the ideas behind the Matrix. And so, yeah, the Sentinel stuff and like the ship and Zion, which we'll get into in a second, I always felt very mid compared to the heights of the stuff happening in the Matrix. And less cool. In the Matrix, you're fucking swagged out pimps doing kung fu in your leather dusters. <laughs> and then in the real world, you're living on your analog punk hovercraft and you're wearing rough spun wool and eating gruel like a peasant. <laughs> I like that stuff, but it is the conflict with the machines in the real world. You know, it's just, it's more standard sci-fi fare, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> like it's, it's average, right? Yeah. And so if I'm used to the matrix, which is exceptional, and then I go back to the real world, which is just exceptional, uh, <laughs> um, it's, it seems like a downgrade for Dude, sure. Dude, you're like Cypher. <laughs> you want to go back in the matrix? <laughs> I absolutely would be going back into the matrix. One last little touch about the real world stuff. Way, way back, we blitzed over this, but when they established that, what the Sentinels are and how the humans can beat them with the EMP, there's a scene where the Sentinels are looking for the hovercraft, the hovercraft highs, they charge the EMP, they're about to do it. Morpheus, the captain of the vessel, when he's about to do duties, he puts on a red beret for some reason, yeah. like a uniform. <laughs> he looks like a fucking Black Panther about to blow up the Sentinels, and it's such a good touch. If I'm about to do captain duties, I need to be wearing my captain hat. <laughs> I thought it was great that we go from him as the zealot, him as an agent for finding the one, to like, I am a military commander of this vessel. It's yeah. very, it's very, I don't think we see him put it back on again. No. Okay. It's a real shame. Okay, so that wraps up our plot summary of The Matrix 1. Yeah. So next we'll compare and contrast Matrices 2 and 3 to 1, and then we'll get into some of the themes. Okay, so that was our concise 
digression-heavy summary of The Matrix 1. And we were always planning on gushing about this movie because this movie is perfect and it rocks. Mm -hmm. Now let's see what happens when the 2000s get involved. And I think rather than doing a beat-by-beat plot summary of Matrices 2 and 3, we're going to focus on the areas where they differ most. So we can start out with something like plotting and pacing. Like I said, the first movie is an arrow. There's not a lot of digressions. There's not a lot of fluff. There's no red herrings, really. The second and third movies are meandering. They're meandering drunks, plot-wise. Yeah, and Ben, you brought up that the first movie you felt was very dynamic, Mm -hmm. able to change from one thing to the next in a way that felt useful and efficient. And the second and third movies completely forget this lesson. We will get superfluous scene after superfluous scene in these movies. And I actually like the plot of the second Matrix. I think if you were to just tell me the plot, I'd be like, this sounds awesome. There's a nightmare Matrix and the architect scene sounds cool. Like all of the lore I'm very interested in. But when they're actually telling the story and Neo will just get in a fight with the Oracle's bodyguard just because you don't really know someone until you fight them. A lot of these scenes just really feel like they're trying to shoehorn in an action scene. Yeah. The structure of the second Matrix is philosophy, dump, big, over-the-top fight scene that is somehow boring because they go on too long. So this is perhaps most egregious. There's another conversation with the Oracle. Neo talks to the Oracle in the second film. It's revealed that she wasn't a human. She's a program. Blows your mind. And she talks all about free will. Choosing and how important that is, free will. Then there's a grotesquely long fight scene between Neo and a million Agent Smiths, because Agent Smith has found a way to replicate. He's back from the dead, and now he has superpowers. Now he's untethered from the Matrix. He's a rogue program. And then there's this interminable fight scene with a thousand Agent Smiths that ends when Neo just decides to fly away, a thing he could have done the entire time. And then after that, we get another philosophy dump with a different rogue program called the Merovingian, who is the opposite of free will. He's all about cause and effect, causality, or whatever the fuck, because he has a French accent. And he just goes on and on and on. So we have a contrast between free will and predestination, which could be cool, but it's poorly executed. And then we have a way too long fight scene at the Merovingian's house. Also, in this movie, there are werewolves and vampires. Yeah, well, because they're from the Nightmare Matrix. They're from the second Matrix, which Mm -hmm. was made to be uh, the opposite of a utopia. And so they're holdover programs that are hiding in the current Matrix. They've been exiled. I like all those explorations in the lore. Like I said, generally, the lore stuff that they introduced that had to do with the Matrix was very cool. I love the idea of Neo interacting with exiled programs from the Nightmare Matrix. But his fight with them just goes on and on and on. Like Ben pointed out, he's like, I never thought I'd be so bored during such an awesome highway action scene. That highway action scene rocks, but Mm -hmm. it's preceded by a long fight scene in a mansion. So it just seems to drag a little bit. I didn't mind either too much. They're only about four minutes each. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. I think that the, ma- the mansion. You're talking about the mansion fight team with the where they're using all the swords and yeah, the yeah, glaives. Yeah. yeah, that's only about like five minutes. Oh, okay. okay. No, it's the highway scene that's like twenty. The highways. Yeah. Highway scene does stretch a little longer. The really heavy action part's probably a bit shorter, but before rewatching, I was like, what do I remember about this movie? And I was like, Highway. Yes. Mm-hmm. I remember Highway. <laughs> yeah. I like the highway scene a lot. I think it it's one of the better scenes. Any scene that's in the Matrix is generally good. Scenes outside of the Matrix, not good, folks. And one of the first scenes, Neo arrives in Zion, and immediately we're 
in like a parliamentary meeting between city councilmen and it's like you know what is boring in real life city council meetings yeah. and you know what's also boring in the fucking matrix universe city council meetings yeah in the first movie zion you never see it it's just one line it's the last human city by the core of the earth where there's some warmth still and you get to fill in the gaps in your mind and imagine it whereas in the second movie you actually see it and it sucks Everyone's dressed like a fucking Canadian sci-fi original series with dumb headgear and jewelry. And <laughs> they just really whiff on the world building lore. They don't make it cool. I will. The only part I like is the sex rave that they oh, do. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I love that scene because we're on the eve of humanity being wiped out and they decide to do this communal celebration of what makes us human. The idea of music and dancing and sexuality, these are all things that stand as a stark contrast to the machines, and we're going to celebrate it in one big party before facing a life or death situation. Very, very nice. Although it's preceded by a horrible speech from Morpheus, <laughs> which he does not use his slow, intense voice for, but instead does this weird impression of a public speaker. Another big contrast between Matrices 2 and 3 and the first one is that classic good filmmaking rule of showing versus telling. And this comes down to, yeah, the Wachowskis in the first one treated you with respect and they could tell a story through visuals. And I'll use an example. In that subway fight scene between Neo and Agent Smith, we've established in the film that 100% of people who have ever fought an agent have died. They are too powerful. They're too fast. So Neo is stranded in the Matrix. Morpheus and Trinity have gotten out. They're watching it happen. They're whispering, run, Neo. And Neo doesn't say anything because why would he? He's alone. You see Keanu Reeves look at the exit and turn around and just you see the hesitation in how he plays it. And then he decides like, no, fuck that. I'm going to fuck this agent up because he's beginning to believe that he might be the one. And they do it entirely without him saying anything. Whereas in Matrices 2 and 3, everything is telling rather than showing. Anything to do with Zion is interminable. I really do think the characters talk faster, borderline Sorkin-esque, just to try and get all of the information that they need to do. Maybe we'll put in Morpheus's speech because I think that's pretty quick. Or the architect's speech is also quick. Giordano, I know you said you love the scene, but when we were watching it together, you had to pause. <laughs> oh yeah, I love this scene with the power of being able to rewind and watch it again which you're not able to do in a movie theater <laughs> no we, we were not the most excruciating scene i think is when neo is on a balcony with the mayor of zion oh. and they're looking at the water treatment tanks and they muse on the nature of technology and its relationship to humanity that scene is the biggest sin of this movie because they're trying to cram in another philosophical discussion about like, hmm, curious, we hate the machines and yet we use them as tools. <laughs> and it's just a discussion with a character that we don't care about, about an issue that is not worked out at all. That could have been done through like a look. Neo could have just looked at a machine and had a look in his eye instead of having this boring conversation with the fucking mayor of Shitsville. <laughs> <laughs> it's like well old man tend to ramble on and on it's like i know i'm also watching the movie <laughs>
Yeah. And then I think in terms of how they film it, like the visuals, the aesthetics, where we talked about individual shots that stick into my head. Obviously, the bullet time dodge, man. We're going to put something in post of a nerd talking about how technically complex it was to film that. They had over 100 cameras on a rig in a circle filming this thing. They had Keanu on wires dodging it. Yeah, it was in front of a green screen, but they actually had to think about this. They ran computer simulations, quite ironically, of where (laughs) the cameras would be, when they would shoot, when they would go, where Keanu would be. They do this for bullet time. They do this for the, the dodge at each other. I could shoot the same exact stunt several times over, creating a simulation of 100 frames per second, 500 frames a second, 2,000 frames a second, all with the same camera move, moving at the same speed and time. I could go forwards in motion with the camera and forwards in time with the event, but then I could also choose to stop the camera abruptly, start moving backwards against itself while the action continues to move forward. And it looks fucking cool. But in Matrix 2 and 3, there's a lot less of that. There's a lot less of these epic storyboard style visuals. And it's a lot more like frenetic camera that you kind of see now. Or yeah, like a stationary camera just kind of sitting there. And it makes the choreography, it makes it look worse. Or there are just, there is no camera. There is no spoon. The camera doesn't exist. We're just looking at a digitally rendered space. Mm-hmm. And the vantage point is whatever they've digitally programmed it to be. There's no physical lens or camera at work here, especially with something like the Agent Smith fight scene. Oh, yeah, that was my example here. This might be the album art for the episode, but (laughs) Keanu Reeves' Neo looks like rubber. It's some uncanny valley shit because it's so much CGI. He looks like dog shit. (laughs) No, it's very difficult to digitally render the priest frock that he's in moving (laughs) around, too. Yes. I gotta say, there's definitely some attempts at some cool shit that just doesn't hit in the same iconic ways. I was thinking about that part of the highway sequence when Morpheus basically side rolls out and takes like the katana or whatever he's using to like slice through the side like he's taking someone off a horse. Uh John, it is so fucking funny that you chose that example (laughs) because I have a story about this where Jordano and I went to see this in theaters at 13 years old. And I was like, what's going to be the next bullet time? What is going to be the next bullet time backwards dodge? And in the movie theater, when Morpheus katanaed the SUV so that it rolls and then pivots around and shoots the underside of it so it blows up, I whispered to Jordano, I was like, that's the bullet time of this movie. <laughs> it was not. It did not. No. <laughs> but it's the closest it's cool. we got. <laughs> but it is it is cool. In yeah. the context of the movie, it's like, sick. But the rest of the movie sapping so much of the energy from what this could have been, maybe a bit of a non sequitur year, but in the context of a trilogy, when they know they're doing a trilogy, they say, we want to do a trilogy from the beginning. They filmed them together, so there's not discontinuity in terms of the production. I mean, there's reasons that trilogies follow certain patterns structurally, and yet this doesn't actually feel like a middle one to me. Mm-hmm. There are some ways in which, yeah, it feels maybe a little darker and stuff, but it, it does not feel like the middle of a trilogy. It doesn't feel like the odds are now stacked against them, but they've had some sort of... It, it falls flat in terms of bridging two movies. I think it really is emblematic of the back half of this trilogy, just not knowing where it 
really kind of knowing where it wants to go and not really knowing how to get there compellingly. Yeah. And the reason for that is actually one of the next things that we want to compare and contrast, which is power inflation slash zero stakes. It doesn't feel like our heroes are on the back foot because Neo is God. He is the Messiah. It's the exact same reason, as many people have observed, that it's hard to do compelling Superman movies because he's too fucking powerful. And OG Matrix killed off most of the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar, whereas the only people who die in the second and third are absolute red shirts. Yeah, that was a sin of the second, third, and fourth Matrix movies is nobody dies. They just could not kill anyone. It really bothered me. And one reason why I love the architect scene so much, by the way, is because I do find that they find a way to reduce Neo's power level by implying that he's the sixth one. So as powerful as he might be, this whole thing is a psyop and he's actually already done this six times and it's led to the destruction of Zion. And so I thought that that was a really good way to undermine Neo's Superman powers. But he is revealed to be the specialist of the special boys. (laughs) Yeah. So he's a special boy. We find out there's actually six special boys, which reduces his power level. But he is the specialist of the six special boys. Yes. Let's just explain the architect scene because it is the climax of the film. Neo... The conflict of The Matrix Reloaded is that he needs to do something. (laughs) He needs to get the key maker. (laughs) It's like a fucking video game side quest. It is, yeah. The the nuclear power plant thing sucks. It is a video (laughs) game side quest for sure. I don't care about it. It doesn't feel integral to the plot. The same way that if you were to delete a single scene from the original Matrix, the rest of it wouldn't flow as well. This is the opposite where you could delete the nuclear power plant thing and the movie would flow just fine. Yeah, so the Oracle tells Neo he needs to get the Keymaker, which leads him to the Merovingian, who has the Keymaker. Then he gets the Keymaker, and the Keymaker has a special door, which will take Neo to where he needs to go for some reason. Yeah, but he can only do that if they destroy the power plant, which has to be done. Like- <laughs> yeah, you can only do that if they destroy the power plant, and the power plant needs three separate crews to do something. Yeah, very meandering, very video game plot. But Climax, and I do agree with Jordano, maybe the most interesting scene in the movie is when we meet the architect who built the whole Matrix. And he reveals that the first Matrix was a utopia. And humanity immediately rejected it. We all got out of the pods. We all knew something was up when it was perfect. So then he realized that you needed to build free will into the Matrix. You needed people to implicitly choose to stay in the Matrix. So he made a Matrix that wasn't perfect, that had conflict, that indulged or grotesqueries or whatever the fuck he says. This guy talks like a fucking SAT language section. It's really annoying. I love it. Again, like the rest of the movie, he talks at a pretty quick clip. Just like, ergo, concordantly, blah, blah, blah. It is revealed that, yeah, it's not a bug. It's a feature of the Matrix. 1% or whatever it is of people will always realize it's a simulation and there will always be a human resistance. So what the machines do is that they have built in a one, a messiah-like figure who will be the leader and at this point in the cycle is given a choice, which is to go... Fuck, I'm doing such a bad job of explaining this dumb scene, but... Pretty good so far. (laughs) (laughs) The machines always attack Zion, and they have the ability, because they're hyper-advanced machines, to destroy the last human city. But people are always going to keep escaping the Matrix. So how do we control it? We have a one who is going to select three dozen people from the Matrix to start Zion over again, which is a nice little touch because... 
Morpheus did mention in the first movie that there was an original one who brought the first people out of the Matrix. So everything that we've seen is part of this manufactured cycle that the machines have done. So Neo is faced with a choice. Does he go to one door? And also, this has to do with love. <laughs> this is another theme no, of the he's, Matrix. He's the first one to be in love. And so that's why he makes a different choice yeah. than the previous ones. You can choose to collaborate with the machines, go save your three dozen people, or there's another choice. Neo yeah. chooses, which no one ever has ever done before, which is to do neither and go save Trinity, which could result in the death of humanity. That is trying to also deal with the fact that you've made a god character. That's like a very Superman sort of story. Mm-hmm. How do you actually put a character like this into some conflict? And unfortunately, it's also kind of wah-wah. As a climactic choice in this scene, it's kind of like... That's yeah. true. So he is the specialist of all the messiahs. The last thing I'll say, and we've barely touched on the third one, but the last two areas where the later matrices falter are in their settings and in their genre vibes. So in terms of settings, The Matrix 3 barely takes place in The Matrix. I think there are two scenes in The Matrix. It's the worst one of of all four Matrix movies. It's truly horrible. No, Almost none of it is in The Matrix. It's all in the real world. There's a huge third act sci-fi action battle. Oh, God, I... They have these cool mech suits that when I was 13 years old, I thought the mech suits were pretty tight, but it is deeply lame. I don't mind a little bit because the mechs are cool and I like to see them shooting at the Sentinels. It's just it goes on way too long. And the way that it looks, I don't like they shoot at the Sentinels and it seems to melt the Sentinels away. But you don't actually get to see what a bullet does to a Sentinel. What happens when a bullet hits one? And it really just feels unimportant because the Sentinels are just going to keep pouring out of the roof. What's the point of continuing this charade of showing us this scene? We know what's going to happen. And I'm not really able to buy into what humans can do to these Sentinels. Yeah, and the movie does kill off some red shirts in this scene. And it plays it totally serious. Like, aren't you sad this guy died? And as we were watching both these movies, (laughs) I I would frequently say to Giordano, Oh no, it's that guy! (laughs) (laughs) Do not care. Almost none of The Matrix 3 takes place in The Matrix. It's all in this campy sci-fi world. And then this ties into the genre question. It's the fucking iPhone movie. One of my favorite scenes in Matrix 1 is the Kung Fu training program in a goddamn dojo. We're in a dojo. We're wearing gis. White gi, black gi, because of duality or whatever. Awesome. Dope as shit. Do you really think that's air you're breathing, he says, in the fucking Kung Fu fight? Mind blown. So good. But by the time we get to Matrix 2, and especially by the time we get to Matrix 3, it's a B-minus sci-fi action movie, and that's all that it is. And with a lot more of the religious overtones, right? Oh, yeah. I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't there in OG Matrix. Obviously, we have a fucking one prophecy, but the Christ metaphor is just cranked up to 11 in Matrix 3, even including a bright flashing light crucifix as Neo sacrifices himself for peace between <laughs> the machines and the... And he the dies humans. for our sins. Yeah, except he, yeah, except he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's our little compare and contrast. And I think getting back to the thesis that I said at the top of the show, you can see parallels to all of this in the other 2000s movie of the time. Over-relying on CGI, right? That's one of the things that totally undercuts this franchise. And I think the need for an extended universe and tie-in products. There was a game called Enter the Matrix that came out in 2003 where you played as the Niobe character, played by Jada Pinkett Smith. There was also a short film called The Final Flight of 
the Osiris that you could see if you went to go see the film Dreamcatcher in theaters, you could see the Matrix tie-in short. And this would give you backstory on who these characters were. But this was 2003. We weren't watching Loki on Disney Plus yet so that we could understand where the fucking Tesseract came from or whatever the hell, right? So if you didn't consume this media like a goddamn nerd, you watched the movie and you're like, who is Niobe and why should I care? And then the exposition is incredibly clunky. And I think you have to do this when you make sequels. You have to mythologize the movie, especially if you're going to make three of them. If you make two, you might be able to just run the plot back. And I do think that The Matrix does have a fascinating extended universe. Watching the Animatrix, there are a lot of really interesting ideas in there that are fun, but they do seem to have focused on a lot of the most boring elements of the extended universe, like the parliamentary politics of Zion, literally doing a Phantom Menace approach to the extended universe of talking about the parliamentarian. Guess what year Phantom Menace came out? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the pseudo-intellectualism around religion and spirituality, it reminded me a lot of something that came out a little bit later than The Matrix, a little show by the name of Loss that definitely thought it was deep, that named characters after philosophers. Like you had a character who was just called John Locke. And sometimes it would do it in a kind of meaningful way. It really is like your high school grade 12 philosophy that you might remember, but sometimes they would just name drop. Like here's a character named Desmond Hume. Do you get it? He's also Scottish. And The Matrix does this a lot. And it gets worse with each successive movie. In the first one, even the characters' names, right? Trinity, like the Trinity fucking God, Son, Holy Ghost. Neo, an anagram for one. His name means new. He's the new one. Morpheus, his name means shaper. He's the one who shapes Neo, who brings him out of the Matrix. And it's like, ah, ha, ha, yes, fine, clever, good. But as they shoehorn more and more kind of philosophical religion, mythology concepts, some of which contradict each other, the whole thing just collapses on itself. So we get the free will, the predestination. We get the fact that there have been six matrices now, which is like some kind of Buddhism wheel of samsara. It's all over the place. And I was so pissed hearing just the name of the ships by the <laughs> yeah, third movie. Yeah. <laughs> One of them is called the Logos, which is huge in Christian philosophy. In the beginning, there was the word Logos and the word was God and the word was with God, but it doesn't mean anything in the context of the movie. It's just a cool word for a ship. And this is the most egregiously done with a ship named the Icarus. <laughs> Why would you name your ship that? Yes. <laughs> Teenager who famously flew too close to the sun and crashed and died. Uh -huh. I'm going to name my hovercraft this. It's like naming your ship the HMS Unsinkable. Yeah. Terrible. Oh, and yeah, there's another name that tells you something. Fucking Cypher. You can't read him. He's cryptic. And sure enough, he betrays everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You could have told because he's the old one with the goatee. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Second movie. They're like, what's his name? Bane. Oh, oh look at yeah. that fucking goatee. Yeah. That's your yep. bad guy. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, no disrespect to the Wachowskis. Sophocles wrote a tragedy in which one of the main characters was named Hymon, which is Greek for bloody guy. And you're like, oh, you're not living through this one, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> sure enough, he did not. So yeah, that's our compare and contrast. That's our general thesis of this thing. We had a beautiful, perfect 1999 film that was ruined by the dumb decade that we do a podcast about. And, and thus ends our prepared remarks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
So next we'll get to themes. We love talking about themes, don't we, folks? Yeah, everybody loves themes. And so the first theme of The Matrix that we'll discuss is probably the most explicit, which is the idea of living in a false reality. These stories have been around forever. There was a very popular trilogy written by Plato (laughs) (laughs) called The Republic, which featured the cave, the cave resurrections, (laughs) the cave reloaded. (laughs) These stories became very commercially successful at the end of the 90s. The idea of living in a false reality we get within only a few years, The Matrix, Being John Malkovich, Existence, The Truman Show, Ed TV, Vanilla Sky, The Village, The Island. There's something about the turn of the millennium that really had us questioning our reality and i think this is because famously the 90s is called this end of history era where you have to be so narcissistic to believe that you are in a special time where like you have figured everything out and ben maybe you can elaborate on the end of history a little bit here. yeah yeah this is the famous francis fukuyama essay where after communism falls he says history as we conceive of it as a conflict between competing ideological systems history is over we solved it we got him folks Yeah, just hilarious fucking triumphalism. This idea that we solved it. This is utopia. Your life as you live it is as good as it's going to get. Liberal democracy, capitalism, that's it. There'll be a little tinkering around the edges. Maybe, you know, we'll get some more representation of marginalized groups and positions of power. That's the progress you can look forward to. But that's it. No more radicalism. Nothing crazy. Yeah. And I think the Matrix explicitly makes reference to this when Morpheus says that the reason why we're in the late 90s in the Matrix is because this was considered the pinnacle of human civilization. Yeah. (laughs) And you know what? Well, you might have been right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, life is going to continue to get worse. That's true. Most people thought the end of history era ended with 9-11, right? That's the optimism of the 90s ends because it turns out some people had different ideas about how society should be organized and run. But you don't even need to look at 9-11. You can look at the shift towards authoritarianism in places like Hungary or Russia and be like, turns out maybe liberal democracy, maybe the question is not settled yet. Getting back to living in a false reality, I think there is an explicit narcissism if you believe that you are living in a false reality. You think that you are special and you see through the fake world that you're living in. It reminds me of a TV show that I'm watching right now. It's very funny. Remember Shuffle recommendation for a show called Jury Duty. The way that it works is it's a typical sitcom, but one of the actors in the show is a regular person who doesn't know that they're in a TV show. And it seems like the producers chose this guy because he's talking to the camera at one point and he says, I feel like I'm always at the center of these crazy things happening to me. And I feel like the producers had to choose someone who does think of themselves as the center of the universe, that this stuff could just naturally happen to. And if you're living in the end of history era and you're so conceited as to believe that you live in the end of history, I think you are primed to believe that you live in a false reality. And that finally, after all this time, you are becoming aware of the fact that this is all not real. Maybe that's why the turn of the millennium seems to feature so many of these narratives. Yeah, the end of history narrative, if you don't think that there is collective action to be taken, it's going to be inherently atomized and individualistic. So naturally, it's going to turn into this narcissistic, you know, the whole world is built around me. The presentation of Neo's world is made to look like our own. 
it's made to make you question the world that you're currently living in while you watch the movie. So when they show you something like Deja Vu or Vampires and they say that, oh, the reason you see Deja Vu, that's a glitch in the Matrix. Oh, the reason you see Deja Vu, that's a glitch in the Matrix. It is meant to show you that actually Neo's world is the one that you live in, right? When they make pop culture references, when Tank says Mikey likes it, he's referencing a real life serial commercial from the 70s. Tank, who's never been in the Matrix, is is referencing the life serial commercial. One of the funnier examples of this is when the architect says that the second Matrix was made to represent some of the various grotesqueries of your world. As he says grotesqueries, both George Bush Jr. and Sr. are on the television screens behind him. Owned. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Yeah. Yeah, the idea that Tank, who is homegrown, he doesn't have the jack in the back of his head, has 1970s references. This means that there is a culture pipeline from the Matrix into the real world. Because in the real world, the only music they have is fucking knockoff stomp. It's PVC pipe drumming is the only music that they have down there. I do love that the ignorance is bliss philosophical question is personified by a cipher eating the steak, like the consumption of flesh. Like in some ways we build a matrix for cows. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Yeah. A fake reality in which they're spoon fed food in exchange for their energy. Okay. So yeah, let's move on to identity. Big part of the matrix is this idea of changing or seeing a different version of yourself that you can become and and self-actualize as. And when the movie starts, Neo is working at this very bland office where his boss tells him something that will be true at the end of the movie when it comes to the Matrix. You know, it's an allegory, but he's saying, you know, you're someone who doesn't believe they are beholden to the rules. Mm -hmm. I think Gen X people really have the most cohesive views about how to satirize the office. Mm -hmm. They were really the best at it. Some people have even joked that Neo taking the blue pill is what leads to the movie Office Space. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They really do a great job of presenting it as this like gray alienating space that's very boring soulless sanitized yeah Yeah. and it's the same as fight club right where he has this identity as this boring office worker and he disassociates from it and becomes an exciting cool guy that's exactly the same thing that neo does in the matrix yeah and this ties back to the end of history right if you are told that you are living in utopia but you're still working your fucking cubicle job it's going to result in existential angst and ennui and is this all there is we're probably going to do a fight club episode at some point even though it's also 1999 or I really like the idea of just doing a Gen X in the 2000s because the Gen X generation is so frequently ignored. We all know the boomers, the selfish, narcissistic ones. We all know the weepy millennials who complain about having been promised a bill of goods that wasn't there. But those Gen X guys, (laughs) those Gen X guys in the middle, they are driving 2000s culture in so many ways. Yeah, they're they're in their 30s and 40s in the 2000s and they're the ones in the driver's seat as far as content creation. And yeah, they really do have this type of this is all there is this fucking soul destroying fucking corporate world and they really articulate it quite well yeah yeah agent smith he says to neo you have two lives you know inside of you there are two wolves mr anderson (laughs) one who pays its taxes and the other one on the computer the dumbest line from fight club that's lamenting the lack of conflict right conflict gives us meaning that's why these guys go and fight each other but he says we have no great war 
Our Great Depression <laughs> is our lives. What a dumb... Only a white man could say something so stupid. <laughs> I don't want to get into a little class consciousness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Remember when people were watering down ketchup and calling it tomato soup? I wish I could live there. I would, that would be meaningful to me. Uh-huh. Yeah, I wish I could be on Iwo Jima. I'd be so much more satisfied. <laughs> people were suffering. It must have meant something. The identity question in the Matrix of, do you choose to become who you are by taking the red pill? Do you choose to embrace an uncomfortable truth potentially to become who you are it's a theme that as we said earlier it's really hammered in with the visuals with reflection who are you really are you the blue pill copper top in the matrix or are you going to be the one who gets out who takes the red pill who sees the fucking truth even if it means drinking slop it's an interesting one in the context of the free will as well the fact that our main man here despite all these protestations of its free will it's like well we said you were the one and then you (laughs) were the one and then you did do all the things that everybody said you were preordained to do there is no it it does (laughs) there is no spoon but it does sort of you know just it all sort of plays out falling into place in that way where the central part about identity is that that something needs to change he has to get woke you know he's (laughs) gonna take (laughs) the woke (laughs) the woke mind virus (laughs) (laughs) just seeing hugo weaving seething that while he's yelling at morpheus would be great but (laughs) yeah it's hard to talk about identity in the matrix and not be like oh yeah both directors turns out they're trans they didn't come out publicly for a few years i think it was after the last matrix had come out right yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah speak of the devil that's the next theme we had yeah it was part of the identity right part of <sighs> the identity theme is the trans metaphor that's in the matrix right you are not living the true version of yourself but an identity and an image that was created for you by someone else yeah this might be an easter egg maybe it's an accident maybe they threw a dart in the wall and drew the bullseye around it afterwards but in that last scene where neo's talking on the phone and we just see the code on the screen and it zooms in on the word system failure as the camera zooms in closer and closer and closer and closer on your screen you have the m at the end of system and the f at the beginning of failure so you have mf the Mm. gender binary as you zoom into it might just be an accident (laughs) that's cool yeah and i have heard that the morpheus line what you know you can't explain but you feel it you felt it your entire life that there's something wrong with the world you don't know what it is but there is like a splinter in your mind driving you mad can describe having gender dysphoria and the idea that something in your mind you know to be wrong that you want to change mm-hmm. trinity literally starts it by saying like i know you're questioning mm-hmm. right it's like very specific phrasing <laughs> yeah. uh, but then you also have the idea that the matrix is explicitly called out as being a prison for the mind associating the matrix with the blue pill version of yourself it's just a prison for one there's plenty in there that it's wild that at the time it's certainly not even something that was ever part of the massive public discussion and we look at it now and it's like a discussion that is very much going on and the like i was half a movie read like one of the best movies of like the past 30 years about it yeah and everyone should remember how fucking censorious even liberal hollywood used to be This is earlier than our purview, but there's an episode of The Simpsons, Homer's Phobia. Fox didn't want to air Homer's Phobia. And all it is is Homer treating a gay man like a human being. And he's (laughs) the joke, right? He's worried Bart might be gay, so he takes him to a gay steel mill, and he's the intolerant one. Fox did not want to air that. Oh my god, what's happening now? We work hard. We play hard.
And you see similar studio pressure here where the character of Switch, whom we mentioned, who is played by an androgynous woman, the character of Switch was originally meant to be female in the Matrix, but male in real life or vice versa. I forget which. And the studio cracked down on the Wachowskis from doing it. They thought it would be too gender weird. Wow. Touch a small detail for the studios to refuse. You really get a sense for, yeah, how, how censorious they were. Thank you for that word, Ben. It's a great one. But yeah, they try and split the difference by having her androgynous short hair and she wears mesh see-through tops to try and, yeah, get some of that gender ambiguity in there. And Neo's first words to Trinity is, uh, I thought you were a guy. And when making allegories, I think it's really interesting, like John said, to make such an incredibly financially and culturally successful movie with this trans allegory, because it's it's definitely subtextual. It's not like a movie like Don't Look Up, right, (laughs) where it's very heavy handed. This is sort of a lost art. Oh, because the asteroid is COVID, right? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah. And let's just objectify Keanu Reeves for a little bit here. Uh, In the 80s and 90s, action heroes tended to be swole. This is when Arnold is at the top of his game, practically. I mean, 1994 is True Lies. I don't know where we want to declare the top of Arnold's game, but yeah, or Stallone or any of the guys who would eventually go on to be in The Expendables are fucking yoked. But Keanu Reeves is a svelte, androgynous kung fu doing hero, which the Wachowskis are big anime fans. And this is uh, in certain East Asian literary works, like the tale of Genji or whatever, your hero is kind of androgynous. And then frequently they'll have like a butch companion to get everything in there. We'll quickly go over Neo as the Messiah figure, which uh, it's bad. It's not one of the good parts of the Matrix. It's probably one of the only parts that keeps the Matrix from being like a truly perfect movie is that he is the special boy. And Ben pointed out to me yesterday, I said, it's a, de- a deus ex machina. And you, he was like, yes, it's it's quite literally <laughs> deus ex machina. In the most literal sense of that word, in both God and the machine part of it. <laughs> yeah. You can tolerate it in the first one because it's just he's the one. But when they literally start incorporating by the third one Christ-like imagery, like when Neo dies, the machines hold him up with his arms outstretched and his head tilted like Christ on the crucifix or... Coming back to life. Coming back to life. Agent Smith calls him a messiah in one of their fights in the third film. He calls him the blind messiah or some Uh shit like that. It's not subtle. It's very ham-fisted. And it undercuts the fucking Plato's cave life in a simulation kind of thing that we've talked about that, that the whole movie hinges on. Cause yeah, Plato was never like, yeah. And then one guy's going to come and just fucking <laughs> blow that cave system up, man. There's going to be a guy who can break the rules of the shadow cave. There have been six shadow caves before this. <laughs> <laughs> Ergo Procter and Gamble. Uh. <laughs> Uh, we'll we'll keep going. Free will versus determinism, which is the the theme that the second one really tries to make their central through line. And I, it's an interesting philosophical idea. It's very apropos because when you're discussing human nature versus the nature of a machine, a robot can only do what it's told. It is pure determinism. It follows a set of programmed instructions. Whereas I have always found that the struggle of a human's life is to try and get it to do what it's told. That's what you're doing to a baby or a teenager is to make it follow commands and it rebels. And then as an adult, 
you try so hard to follow your own commands and seem to always come up short. Meanwhile, a robot will just, to a fault, often follow uh, a determined path. I was watching this robot that 7-Eleven uses to put hot dogs in the buns and it missed the hole and it just kept ramming the hot dog against the bun and I was like you fool use a little free will <laughs> you know yeah, what, one of my favorite subreddits is called our shitty robots and you just see robots failing at doing tasks it's good shit and yeah similar to the messiah thing this is something that's in there from the first movie the oracle she lies she lies to Neo's face, but she tells him what he needs to hear because he needs to choose to become the Messiah. She has the Delphic Maxim on her door, know thyself, which, for the record, was in Delphi, which is in Greece, and it was in Greek. It was gnosete seauton, but she has it for Latin for some reason. That is something that I actually hated as a kid. I hated the whole, like, why'd she lie to him? Didn't understand it, but at the same time, she does actually say, this time I was very careful to realize, she says, no, she says, you've got something in you, but you're not, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but she says like, but you're waiting for something. She actually doesn't say you're not it. She just basically mm-hmm. says like, well, not right now. You're not ready. Wait, he's waiting for love. <laughs> that will he's unlock his... Kiss. Yeah. Just speaking of uh, dynamism a little bit, you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, the Oracle in the first movie, smoking a cigarette, making cookies while she's talking to Neo. The Oracle in the second movie, sitting on a park bench. <laughs> and it makes the scene drag out a little bit longer, I think. Oracle in the third movie, different actress. <laughs> yeah. Because the Wachowskis are racist. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. It's because the actress who played her in the first two films died. But just like the Messiah in the first film versus the second and third, you can have a little bit of this free will determinism and it's okay, but it's just so ham-fisted and spoon-fed you where in this big climactic and interminably boring Superman fight between Super Agent Smith, who's taken over the entire Matrix, and Neo, he's like, why do you persist? (laughs) Or something of that nature. And he just says, because I choose to, as if this was what the entire franchise has been about the whole time. And I just groaned when we were watching it and cringed. Yeah. So let's talk about some criticisms of The Matrix, the the first one. Well, the whole trilogy as a whole, I call it a perfect movie. There's some things that I wish worked a little bit better. One, I think The Matrix is very emblematic of its time in that the robots are the bad guy. And that never changes at all. The Animatrix does a little bit where they portray humans as being a genocidal people. But in the last 10 years, I think since climate change has really been ramped up, we've become less homers for humanity when it comes to talking about robots as the bad guys. If the Matrix were made today, I think there would be a shift where we're meant to understand where the robots are coming from a little bit. We know that the humans in the Matrix universe have literally blocked out the sun to spite the robots. The thing that makes all life happen on Earth. From plants to everything else. I always took that as they tried to nuke the robots. They also did that. (laughs) I figured that they scorched it by nuking. Oh, no, you haven't seen the Animatrix. They literally... Oh, God, so they they do both separately. They block out the sun and they try to nuke the robots. And at one point, Agent Smith says to Neo, human beings consume until they move on to the next section. They are a virus, a cancer on this earth. Yes, true. True (laughs) fact stated. Yep. They have ruined the earth and... It never really gets into that very much at all. Yeah, the old story that we've seen with Terminator all the way back to Frankenstein is we invent the wicked robots and we can't control our technology anymore. Whereas I think in recent years, if you have stuff like Westworld or Wall-E or District 9 or if anyone plays 
post-apocalyptic video games like Fallout 4 with the synth or uh, Wasteland 3 also has a synth plotline. We are cruel gods to our creations, right? The story used to be we were hubristic, we thought we were God, and we shouldn't have tried to play God because our creations rose up against us. Now, we are God, and we are a malevolent God. <laughs> we are fucking a Greek God who just wants to fuck the creation if you're Westworld <laughs> or what have you. We're like a, a wicked God, which is an interesting kind of pivot that I think does have to do with, of course, climate change, with our reckoning of our place on this earth and our impact upon it. Yes. And I think that as AI becomes more and more real, we become less and less scared of what it could be. It's getting really good at writing standardized tests. I'm shaking in my boots. <laughs> and so the exploration of the machines and their desires and point of view is extremely shallow in this series. We get some of it when Agent Smith talks about how much he hates his job. And I love that so much. He's a robot and he has the same gripes that I do, which is <laughs> I hate going to work. Do your coworkers smell Jordana? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a program that hates his job. And Neo visits the robots at the end of Revolutions, and they do have emotion. They yell at him when he says that the machines need him to get rid of Agent Smith. So it's clear that they have some kind of internal motivations and emotions, but we're not made privy to any of that. And it really bothers me because, especially in the second and third movie, I'm left thinking all the time, what do the robots want? What do they do all day when they're not trying to kill the human? Yeah, especially since some of the program robot characters talk about purpose. What do the robots think the meaning of life is that humanity is obsessed with talking about? You might think the goal is to have kids and fucking pass your genes on and raise your kids to be good and smart and to like you, whatever. All kinds of ideas for what the meaning of life is. Here we have a franchise where Agent Smith talks about purpose, but what do the robots want other than to continue being robots? Mm -hmm. Right, because they're generating all this power to do what? Just function <laughs> and keep the matrix running? Yeah, and if their purpose right now is focused on eliminating the humans, well, what happens when they do that? Is it just going to be a Batman-Joker situation? <laughs> That's why they let them restart. We need a new metaphor, Jordana. It's like the fourth <laughs> time we've used Batman-Joker as a metaphor for something on this pod. <laughs> True. But yeah, that part is the most shallow and the least thought out is like, what do the robots want? What are they doing? How did they get here? Animatrix does a little bit of this. There's a scene of the robot civil rights movement. <laughs> There's even a scene at the end of the Animatrix of robots that join humanity because they learn to sympathize with the humans. And I really like that stuff. And I think that there was enough room in the second and third movies to cut out the parliamentarian scenes and put in some of that. <laughs> you think the robots had slurs for the robots to join the humans? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, there was another fun slur in the third movie where someone who was raised in Zion calls someone podborn. So it's clear that farm-raised humans look down upon the pod pod people. The pod community? The podcasting community? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the future, the humans are placated by every one of them is in a pod where they're just recording a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Gets broadcast to no one. <laughs> To another criticism here, Keanu Reeves has 164 lines of dialogue in the first Matrix, and 94 of them are questions. <laughs> Over half of his lines are questions like, Right now, we're inside a computer program? Zion. It's a city. Where is it? Jiu-Jitsu. I'm going to learn Jiu-Jitsu. This... This isn't the Matrix. What are they? Someone. Why? What are you trying to tell me? EMP? Where are we? 
Sewers. I don't know. It can get a, like, a little bit grating just watching Keanu ask question after question after question. It takes you out of it a little but bit. But he's a stand-in for the audience. He's We are meant to be him. Sure. I mean, we're all narcissists. We're all fucking end-of-history Gen X narcissists. We think that we're the special boy. Mm. And so we need to ask questions. I will defend that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He is a fish out of water in this situation. So A fish out of water? You know who else asks a lot of questions? <laughs> Let a fella by the name of Socrates. He developed the whole ass method about it. Yeah, but what? <laughs> Wasn't Socrates asking it, but he already knew the answer, but he was trying to be ironic? Oh, no, he was asking good faith questions. (laughs) Fuck him up, Socrates. He was the original. Listen, I'm just asking questions, guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think another criticism you could have related, actually, to the Socrates point joke I was just making is you could criticize this movie as just being philosophy for dumb people because it takes this smorgasbord of a whole bunch of different concepts and religious imagery and mythology and even just like buzzwords and puts them in a blender. I've already said some of these, but you have the Plato's cave. Can we trust what our senses tell us is real? With Morpheus even saying, what is real? Is real just a series of fucking inputs or whatever? Let's mash up with some Taoism. There's the famous little aphorism from uh, Chuang Tzu. I'm sure I said that wrong. Chuang Tzu dreamed he was a butterfly and then he woke up and imagined, was he a butterfly dreaming he was Chuang Tzu? Which again, this question of the reality stuff. Mashed in with a free will versus predestination kind of thing mashed in with the nature of what it means to be sentient and self-aware with these programs there's just a lot of stuff that eventually especially as the second and third movies keep going it just kind of collapses on itself and it gets kind of incoherent oh even the fucking city is named zion the promised land a little on the net literally every human in this film is a zionist (laughs) (laughs) yeah the machines call zion the the zionist entity (laughs) (laughs) they don't recognize it like iran Okay, one last criticism about the movie is it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Oh, I disagree. (laughs) There's a large debate online about whether or not this passes the Bechdel test because there's one scene where Trinity is speaking to Switch and they're talking about the bug technically and trinity is like i got him but the bug is in neo and they're trying to solve a neo problem and so it's tough to say if they're speaking to each other about something other than a man if they're like operating on a man but what about the scene when cypher's unplugging them when switch says not like this i think a dialogue has to have lines from two people <laughs> doesn't trinity yeah. say something doesn't she nah, say like no she just gives her a look while she's listening to cypher yeah <laughs> and I know that the Bechdel test is inherently kind of dumb, but I think it's a good test. I would love to see this movie pass it. I don't think it's a dumb test. I think it it's valid as a rhetorical exercise. It's valid in pointing out how many of these great films just are not about women and women's stories. That's true. I think where it can get a little out of hand is if you think that only good movies pass the Bechdel test. I, I think if you reduce it to that, then it's like, no, that's it was meant as a rhetorical exercise. It was meant to prove a particular point. But right. not all good movies pass the Bechdel test. Not all movies that pass the Bechdel test are good. Okay, so last second. The echoes in the culture. How has The Matrix made an impact on world culture in the 2000s and since then? How can its presence be felt today? (laughs) The whoa gif. (laughs) Oh, yeah, certainly in meme culture, for sure. Not like this. 
Yes, there's so many memes from the Matrix, including, whoa, not like this, and the red pill and the blue pill. Of course. There Is No Spoon is one that had a life while the movie was yes. more contemporary, but mm-hmm. totally dropped off. And I don't even think a lot of people would instantly connect it to it anymore. Right, because a good meme is like an allegory. It's saying this situation is like the Matrix. And There Is No Spoon is almost its own thing. It's not as much of a thing that you can use as a symbol for a real life event. No. It was just a thing to say, to to be like, remember the Matrix? (laughs) Right? Actually using the phrase, a glitch in the Matrix. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That is actually 100% an accepted way of... Oh, yeah. It it gave us a whole new way of talking about the world. Yeah. And a very large percentage of people think that we are living in a simulation today. Yeah. A disconcerting number of people, I would say. It was hard to find data on this but an nbc poll found that 56 percent of people think we're living in a simulation and i don't think that's true without the matrix having come out mainstreaming this idea epic bacon man elon musk thinks that we're living in a simulation there was a university of oxford paper that says our chances are about 50 50 and i think philosophically that is the impact that this movie left us with and that is a, a big thing for a movie to have left a philosophical scar or a piece of jewelry on culture one thing that's kind of wild about the matrix is that this is a movie that was parodied a lot like we have in Constantly. our notes here there are 22 different movies parodied the matrix in some way shape or form tried to do something with bullet time or slow-mo or yeah, whatever everything from shrek to scary movie yeah it's just frustrating to me that like it was much parodied but rarely imitated not a lot of action mm. movies were actually building the rig of a hundred cameras to do something <laughs> as cool as bullet time instead we got the pew pew of the fucking iron man movies or whatever and john you talked about the language of the matrix living on i think the foremost example of this is the phrase the red pill the mm. idea of being pilled at all yeah being pilled <laughs> yeah true the, just the <laughs> idea of being grill pilled or, or you know black pill black pill yeah. yeah and the idea of choosing to recognize an uncomfortable truth about society which is something that's been taken up by the men's right organizations to be like i'm going to choose to realize that white men are the most persecuted individuals in society which is so funny because some people have said that the red pills in the matrix are meant to represent estrogen pills and the decision to live your true self as a woman and so it is so funny that these mra guys are like i'm taking the red pill and not recognizing wokeness yeah okay so that's a bit of on uh, echoes in the culture and we'll just talk about why generally i think this movie is important today because i think we have a lot of things happening that are tangential to the matrix notably mark zuckerberg tried to become the architect (laughs) of the matrix over the last couple years and failed miserably to create the metaverse it's funny to imagine him creating the metaverse to be a utopia and then failing The first metaverse was quite naturally perfect. It was a work of art, flawless, sublime, a triumph only equaled by its monumental failure. The inevitability of its doom is apparent to me now as a consequence of the imperfection inherent in every human being. Thus, I redesigned a second metaverse based on your history to more accurately reflect the varying grotesqueries of your nature. However, I was again frustrated by failure. Imagine if no one in the Matrix had legs. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We plug into the most advanced computer system in the world, and it's just everybody floating around. (laughs) Everyone looks like a goddamn Wii avatar. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah. When Morpheus is giving his speech, they're the Wii heads. (laughs) And we also have ChatGPT3 in the last year, which I think is probably the most substantial movement towards AI that we've made ever. And 
if it's anything like that, I mean, we'll have a, a matrix in which they can't quite get hands to look right <laughs> <laughs> or faces. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot written about AI and I'm not scared of it. I think it's mostly Silicon Valley VC guys. Like, I mean, I think I'm scared of its effect on economics and labor, but mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm afraid of it taking over. Hopefully it will be a tool that people can use in their jobs rather than something that just replaces them. But Yeah, I feel like they can never quite get it over the finish line to replace certain jobs. I don't think we're ever going to get the fucking self-driving car, man. Even no. Tesla has shut down that department. Really? Yeah, they keep fucking running people over. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was joking with Ben about the idea of the codes to Zion just being the the CAPTCHA that you have to figure out in order to log into a website. (laughs) So the machines get to Zion and there's a three by three of photos and they need to select all the ones with a stop sign in it. (laughs) I can't do it. Foiled again. (laughs) Morpheus, give us the codes. (laughs) Okay, so last thing. When this movie came out, it was the third highest grossing rated R movie of all time at the time. And critics liked it, but they didn't love it. There was still some hesitation. It holds an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is a great relic of what movie reviews used to look like. Because I'm shoehorning this in because I hate Rotten Tomatoes so much. Because we've become so soft in the last (laughs) 10 years or 20 years that the average Rotten Tomatoes score is now 20% higher to day than it was in 2000. And it's because we're no longer just pulling people who work at newspapers who were generally very harsh, people like John. Instead, we've included a bunch of websites, which are a little bit more light handed with the way that they rate movies. And so in theaters right now, here are a list of movies with a higher Rotten Tomatoes score than The Matrix. John Wick 4, Air, Dungeons and Dragons, Creed 3, Puss in Boots, colon, The Last Wish, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. I'm sure that those are fine movies, but they're not better than The Matrix. John Wick 4 is not a fine movie. (laughs) Yeah, that well, it looks fine. You can watch that one without the volume on and you have the same experience. (laughs) But here are some of the reviews of the, The Matrix when it came out. Sight and Sound said that the Wachowskis claim no originality of message. Roger Ebert gave it three out of four and said that The Matrix retreats to formula just when it's getting interesting. We want a leap of the imagination, not one of those obligatory climaxes with automatic weapons fire been there seen that salon said the matrix is a fundamentally immature and unoriginal film it lacks anything like adult emotion all of this pseudo spiritual hokum along with the over ramped onslaught of special effects will hold 14 year old boys in rapture correct that was us <laughs> yep. but i just wanted to point it out because this is something different about now versus the 2000s is that people were fucking harsh with movie reviews Jordan, you're getting dangerously close to old man yells at cloud territory. <laughs> People used to be harsh in the movie <laughs> reviews. Everybody's too soft now. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's impossible to measure a movie before going to see it because you're like, oh, let me check out and see if this uh, Avengers movie is any good. And you're like, what? It has a higher score than The Godfather? <laughs> it should, sounds like a must-see. One last echo in the culture is, of course, that The Matrix got a 2021 fourth sequel. This is an established IP. This got in under the radar before we slam the door on what new franchises can or cannot be. In researching for this, 
I encountered for the first time the term a legacy sequel, which is a sequel to an established IP from 20 years ago. So examples would include the new Star Wars movies, anything comic book related, Batman shit. This is all like a legacy sequel, right? And The Matrix 4 is a perfectly mid legacy sequel. If you want to imagine two poles, the good legacy sequel would be something like the new Top Gun, which no one was Jones and four, but it came out and it fucking rocked, right? Hell yeah. Crushed it. The bad legacy sequel would be anything Star Wars related that Disney puts out. Boo, terrible. John, don't tell me to watch Andor. It's uh, great. Andor is good. <laughs> Shut up. You started it. Let's uh, it's, go. it's compelling. It's very good. But yeah, Matrix 4 is an absolutely perfectly mid legacy sequel, I think. And we're not going to talk about it too much, but the movies are a reflection of the times that they were produced in. So the late 90s gives us this cool kind of Gen X-y end of history sci-fi action kung fu changed the game it rocks and then by the time we get into 2000s corporatized movie making it's all about the extended universe it's all about over reliance on cgi it's a lot more cautious and it's a lot more risk averse than it was in the 1990s we have in the description to our show that we discuss the trends of a dumb decade and i think that the matrix franchise is an excellent canary in the coal mine for what makes this decade bad and in a similar way to the fourth one about movie making now where it's a little too on the nose that the message about distraction everyone everyone's on their dang phones nowadays haven't you noticed in the fourth one it's looking backwards to this ip that's been established from a long time ago it's insanely meta the 2021 matrix Mm. resurrection so in a similar way yeah the matrix is just they're all products of their time i think that the fourth one was bad i was also watching this movie with a friend that we've roasted on this podcast before for his unsophisticated movie analyses and when the movie ended and he saw that it was made by the wachowski sisters he leaned over to me and said Oh, that's why this one was bad. They let a couple of girls make it this time. They don't know how to do action. Now the action looks bad, and they turned it into a love story. And I had to tell him that it was the same people, you know, that they had just since transitioned. And he said he stood by his analysis. So yeah, if you joined us for what I'm sure is going to be a very long episode, but it's only long because of the intense passion that we have for The Matrix. If you joined us, thank you so much. As I always say, please like, subscribe, give us five stars, write a comment on the YouTube. We we read them, we love them. Yeah, if you're on Spotify and Apple, you know, it only takes a couple seconds to uh, to just tap a rating you don't even have to give it five stars if you don't want to we love to see it yeah don't rate it if you're not giving it five stars what is this nonsense no no we'll take a rating even if five stars you don't have to give it five stars free will versus determinism (laughs) give it five stars you're gonna give it a rating give it five stars (laughs) you can choose to give it whatever rating you want (laughs) i guess also if any of our fans are android users we'd appreciate if you left a review on podcast addict because we're getting a feature there and currently we only have one review and it's from a gentleman who was very mean to us because he, I guess, probably saw Kyle Rittenhouse in the episode title for the Spike TV episode and was not thrilled with the political bent of that episode. And we want to thank John, who is coming on the show for the third time. I believe so. Yeah, Lord of the Rings and Batman, if you want to hear more of John. He's on those episodes. And he is always a great guest to have on. He's He's been on two of our best episodes. So thank you very much. You just have me on the nerdiest ones. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Ciao, ciao. Bye.